And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, a show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a high school social studies teacher, a middle and high school principal, and now coach and support principals here in Los Angeles. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is my 15th year, and this is All the Above, a show where we take a look at education news and headlines because mainstream media outlets, their education section tends to be uh, non-existent. Thin. Non-existent. Thin at best. Bunch of busters. <laughs> so if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you for tuning in. Please hit that subscribe button, and uh, remember to like our video because we still have some random, random person out there. Betsy. giving a I see you. A singular thumbs down. Not cool. Not I think cool. it's, it's got to be, Betsy. It's got to be. <laughs> and if you're listening on the go, please remember you can go to our website, aotashow.com, for all the videos of all of our episodes. So, Jeff, what's on the agenda today? Well, we got another good one, Manuel. Um, of of course. course, we're going to kick off with our Do Now, where we explore the latest headlines in education. And for most people, I'm going to venture to say, this is all the really interesting stuff that you should know about, but you're probably not going to know about unless you are listening or watching all of the above. Indeed. Um, for our main segment today, we are joined by the wonderful Genevieve Debose Akinagbe. Um, she is a literacy coach uh, at a middle school in Watts, and we're going to dig into some fascinating discussion about the issue of attracting and retaining and developing uh, strong teachers in our highest needs schools. Um, we as a nation have a, a long history of having teacher high teacher turnover and um, you know lower quality teachers in some of our um, you know low income communities and schools serving primarily black and brown youth. So we're going to dig into some uh, some important issues around that topic today. So it's going to be a good one. Definitely don't want to miss it. Indeed. Thank you for joining us. Let's go to our do now. Time for our do now. Let's take a look at recent headlines in education, particularly some stories that you might have missed. Jeff, how are we doing the do now today? Well, today, Manuel, we got a pop quiz. Pop quiz. Got to think on your toes today. Okay, okay. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> I think I'm ready. Okay. All right. First question, Jeff. First, first question. question. What secret lurks in the shadows of many high-performing suburban schools? Uh, racism. <laughs> Half credit. I, I mean, a pervasive racism. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, in a recent article that appeared in USA Today, uh, Justin Murphy and Georgie Silverroll, they basically had a bit of a review of data indicating that suburban schools, particularly high performing suburban schools, have a lot of issues when it comes to um, race and treatment of students of color, particularly black students, finding that black students are more likely to be suspended, more likely to not be enrolled in AP classes, and all sorts of stuff. So they profiled a few suburban districts, one being the Phoenix Area School District of Paradise Valley, where white students are about twice as likely as black and Hispanic students to be enrolled in at least one AP class. Jeff, are you surprised that we have some racial disparities in well-performing suburban schools? 
So I'm not, uh, just because as we've reported probably numerous times uh, many, else many, on many, this show, this is an issue we need to deal with nationally uh, in society and schools. You know, this is part of our national culture we need to grapple with. That said, what I thought was really fascinating in the article it was actually one of the stories out of, um, it was a, a high school in Rochester, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, featuring a student who was trying to take an AP exam, was denied that opportunity effectively by the school counselors and then went and enrolled outside um, of the high school in a a college course, (laughs) succeeded in that course and essentially came back and had to be like, I told you I could I could do it. Right. Um, that like really sort of pulled on the, on the heartstrings for me a little bit, right? This idea that, that we are, um, you know, putting up barriers for students who want to access, uh, you know, these rigorous courses, like what, what are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. Nate Bowling, a former national teacher of the year finalist, you know, he, he's a bit a big advocate for equity in AP classes. And one thing that he, he, uh, harps on is this idea that if your AP classes do not match the diversity of the rest of your school, there's a problem right there. So when we look at these AP courses, um, in this particular article, they're talking about how few black and brown students were allowed to take these AP classes. Like if those AP classes are lily white and you have students of color in the general student body, like there's a problem there. Yeah. Um, one other thing that stood out to me in this article was a, a story about these five girls who are um, known as the five black girls at their school, because mm-hmm. five girls who are black who are in uh, a lot of the advanced classes and sort of the stigma that comes with um, being one of the few students of color around, which made me think about uh, Claude Steele, a social psychologist out of Stanford who's researched for, for decades about stereotype threat and the, this idea that when you are one of these few students of color in a situation, that this fear and anxiety that comes from confirming people's negative stereotypes, this idea that, you know, am I really supposed to be here? And just the, the burden that that places on performance. And, uh, you know, I just think about, I, I was one of the only students of color in a lot of my uh, advanced classes, but I, there was a lot of students of color at my schools. And to think about being at a school where you're one of the few, that's um, gotta be tough. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I could identify with that both in terms of my high school experience and mm-hmm. my college experience. Like, yeah. I remember vividly the feeling I had submitting my first paper uh, as an undergrad and feeling like I got to do well on this. Right. Like, you know, I was a, a one of relatively few black faces on campus mm-hmm. and I was an athlete. I was a football yeah. player. Right. And huh. I, I was like, I cannot yeah. be that guy who does right. not deliver here. So I understand. Yeah, man. Um and also one other last thing before we get on to our next story. Um, I was also thinking about, uh, with regards to this story, um, the fact that these higher performing suburban schools, lar- largely because of their test scores, you know, you, you Google them and all that stuff and they just look like great schools. And um, one uh, professor that was quoted in an article said that their, their performance largely is a reason why these other issues are ignored. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that school's doing great. That's a great school right there uh, based off test scores. And, um, you know, these real deep-seated inequities are often just overlooked. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, next question. All what right. we got, what we got? Here we go, Manuel, pop quiz. Um, what great American villain has made a resurgence mm. in recent years? Hmm, let's see. Um, there's a Joker movie coming out soon I'm looking forward <laughs> to. Um, is it the Joker? Uh, I mean, that is an intriguing answer, Um, but I think uh, what we're really looking for here is the schoolhouse bully. 
schoolhouse bully. Uh, it is apparently back in style, unfortunately. So um, there's a new study uh, in the Educational Researcher, which investigates bullying following the 2000 election, uh, which, of course, brought us Donald J. Trump. Um, the authors, uh, Francis Wong of the University of Missouri and Dewey Cornell of the University of Virginia, um, used uh, a set of school climate survey data um, looking over a three-year period, uh, 2000, or multiple uh, administrations of the survey, 2013, 15, and 17, um, and uh, trying to find correlations between incidences of bullying and, um, you know, and other, other factors. And there's been lots of anecdotal uh, kind of reports from teachers and, and other sources saying, you know, the Trump campaign and election has brought us an increase in bullying. Right. And I would say this is probably um, among the more like rigorous academic studies that seems to be offering data that might confirm that um, set of anecdotal observations. So what, what do you see here, Manuel? Yeah, um, so in looking at their study, they, they found that in in areas that favored the Republican candidate versus areas that favored the Democratic candidate. In past elections before 2016, there wasn't a big difference in reports of bullying and racially racially charged incidents. Um, but they found that in the 2016 ele election, areas that favored the Republican candidate, so areas that favored Trump, saw higher adjusted rates of students reporting that they had experienced some form of bullying. So in those areas, they had an 18% higher incidence of bull, uh, reports of bullying than they did in areas that favor the Democratic candidate. And these areas were 9% more likely to report uh, students seeing or being teased or put down because of their race or ethnicity. So some real numbers behind, like you said, the anecdotal data of bullying and uh, racist incidents on the increase ever since the 2016 election. Yeah. Uh, what really jumped out to me about this, uh, you know, obviously this study is being done with, you know, one sort of geographic area. So there's, you know, um, a lot more to unpack about what this may look like nationally. That said, I think, um, you know, is anyone surprised by this? Right? right. Like, you know, we have clan folk marching and walking around and feeling proud about themselves and the MAGA hat boys doing their yeah. thing. Um, you know, reading about this, uh, it really made me um, think, actually, the um, so the recent attack on the, the actor from uh, the show Empire, Jesse um, uh, Smollett, Smollett, yeah. Smollett um, you know, captured a lot of people's attention. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was um, uh, an actress, I believe her name is Ellen Page, who was on. Um, the Late Show and gave this kind of, you know, compelling monologue about connect the dots, right? That we have uh, a culture and, a, and a, a set of politicians that are that are using the cultivation of hate and bigotry for political ends and that we need to be able to connect the dots. And, I, you know, this this makes me feel similarly like this is a study that is helping us. Uh, for those who maybe don't want to believe the anecdotal stuff to connect the dots, right? right. That we, we're on the precipice of something very dangerous here, right? Of um, giving permission for these kinds of hateful and, and bullying behaviors to, to be okay. And yeah. we know from all kinds of public health data, uh, mental health data that tells us that kids who experience bullying, harassment, and, and this type of psychological violence, um, it has all kinds of negative associations with life outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. from, from body weight to literal life and suicide, right? right? And so we, we're on notice. This really needs to be addressed and, and addressed swiftly. 
and addressed by teachers in these classrooms at these schools in these areas. I mean, you know, if you're a teacher in, in well, wherever you teach, but particularly if you're teaching in one of these areas where bullying is on the increase in that area, according to the study, uh, might be uh, more likely to be an area that supported Trump. Um, what are you doing during your class to foster a real climate of, of mutual respect and climate of love and trust? Because, you know, if you're just sitting there sticking to your content curriculum and not really addressing any of this stuff, you're, you know, you're allowing it to go on and all the talk about teachers not being political and, you know, stay out of politics, do your job and teach math. All right, well, this bullying is happening at schools and you are a teacher at a school site and you are part of the reason why students, you know, um, learn what they learn in terms of their behavior. So they're going to learn from you if you address it, you know, hit the nail on the head and actually address this. Or, you know, if you ignore it and allow it to continue, you know, maybe you're, you're um, contributing to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Last question. Last question. Here we go. All right. We got a tough one here. <laughs> I'm right. ready. Let's do it. How many years does it take to earn a four-year college degree? <laughs> is this a trick question? It is not a trick question. Not no a trick, trick questions, question. man. This okay. is serious assessment I'm, here. I'm going to say a lot. More a lot. than four. So, yes, it actually does take more than four, particularly yeah. if, you're, if you are a student at one of California's uh, state universities. An article that appeared recently in EdSource by Larry Gordon um, looked at numbers coming out of Cal State University campuses. For those of you not familiar, uh, the Cal State University system is there are 23 campuses and um, looking at graduation rates for uh, four-year graduation rates and six-year graduation rates, um, there were some pretty, pretty upsetting numbers when it came to the performance of, of certain campuses namely 11 campuses where less than 20% of their students who entered as freshmen graduated within four years. Less than 20%. Jeff, tell us, tell us some more about this. Yeah, so I, this is a fascinating story. On the one hand, the numbers are shocking and, you know, like we need to improve these things. Right. Um, and there's actually a reason that um, the Cal State system has a set of goals to reach by 2025 mm -hmm. to get to this, I think it's a 70% uh, uh, graduation rate. So, um, so obviously our sense of concern is justified. Right. On the other hand, there's some there's more to the story, I think, as there usually is. So so one, the six year graduation rate for these uh, for Cal State universities in general and for these 11 that are the, the lowest performing is much, much higher than the four year graduation rate. So, for example, at a school like Cal State L.A., which has the lowest four year graduation rate of just under 10 percent, that six year graduation rate goes up to uh, 48.5%, right? So we're talking about huge jump, right? right? And we're also talking about Cal State schools, um, which also offer two and four year uh, degree, degree programs in a lot of cases. And so, um, you know, I think we have a larger number of students entering into those schools who are maybe on a more than four year trajectory in general. Now, does that let them off the hook? No, right. but I think there's, there's more to the story. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot being done. There's a um, big investment in California to boost these numbers across the C, uh, Cal State system. So some changes that have taken effect recently are um, encouraging more students to take a full 15 unit uh, load of classes each semester, um, hiring more counselors, hiring more faculty so that students could take uh, the classes they need and, and, and not be delayed. Um, these changes, a lot of them have just been rolled out within the last two years, including um, getting rid of uh, non-credit remedial classes. So these numbers should be improving 
um, sometime soon, but they're not altogether surprising. Um, a lot of my students end up in the Cal State system after high school, and um, a lot of these students are students for whom the, the challenges and the barriers are, 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 are really difficult to overcome. I mean, we're talking about cost of living, we're talking about a lot of students having to commute, a lot of students having to work full-time and uh, go to college, so the fact that the four-year graduation rate is as low as it is in a lot of these campuses isn't altogether surprising. Um, but like you said, looking at the six-year rate, you see uh, a big jump. And with these changes that are taking place, hopefully we'll get those numbers up even more. Yeah. And just to give folks a little bit of context, nationally, the U.S. Department of Education uh, reports that the average six-year graduation rate for four-year universities uh, across the board in the country is in about the mid 60s. I believe it's about 66 percent. Mm. Right. So, um, you know, I think sometimes we think of college uh, in our heads and we kind of assume that like almost everyone must finish. Right. Um, but that stat is really only true of your very selective four year colleges. So schools that admit fewer than 25 percent of applicants have almost a 90 percent four year graduation rate or excuse me, six year graduation rate. Um, you know, schools yeah. that are much less selective have data that looks a lot more like the Cal State system, which, again, doesn't mean we let them off the hook. Right. Like we as a country invest tons of money in our university systems. Right. Um, so we should be getting better results than we're getting. Um, but it's good to see some momentum around this, I think, here in here in California. Yeah, and I'm really enthusiastic about these changes that are being made, and I'm hoping they do make a difference because I, I know so many students that uh, they go off to college and they're taking all these remedi remedial courses and they're hating it and they're so far behind on their degree because of that. So seeing that and seeing a greater investment in counselors and faculty, you know, hopefully um, these numbers do go up because right now, um, I don't know, a little, little, um, a little troublesome looking at the numbers just straight up. Yeah. All right, folks, that does it for today's Do Now. Do remember, anytime we mention a study or a story or anything like that during um, any of our segments, you can go to our website and see links to all of them because we know you are a very educated audience and you want to read these stories and these studies for yourself. So head over to aotashow.com to get links and uh, be able to read, uh, read more about all these, all these stories. But up next, we have our show and tell. All right, folks, for today's seminar, we have a wonderful special guest. We have Genevieve Debose Akinagbe, um, who is a literacy coach at a middle school in Watts. Uh, thank you for joining us today. We're thank excited you to have me. you. And uh, tell us, what have you brought in for today's show and tell? Um, so today I brought a letter that one of my students wrote to me on the last day of school. When you think about your K-12 schooling experience, what do you remember about your teachers? Did you have a teacher like Mrs. Williams, my second grade teacher, who made me feel safe, loved, and supported each and every day? Or were you fortunate enough to have a teacher like Ms. Faulkner, my ninth grade English teacher, who exposed me to books and music that changed the way I saw the world? I'm hopeful that you had numerous teachers who impacted your life for the better. But I know there are some of you out there, maybe even many of you, who either don't remember most of your teachers because they didn't have much of an impact on you, or who distinctly remember your teachers because they were detrimental to your learning and to your development as a human being. As a veteran educator who has spent her career teaching and coaching in high-need schools across the country, it pains me to say that most of my students can relate to those of you who've experienced a miseducation at the hands of your teachers. 
My students, most of whom are black and brown and economically poor, often expect to have bad teachers because that's what we've given them year after year. Take this letter from one of my seventh graders in the Bronx at the end of last school year. I asked my students to write me a letter reflecting on the year, and here's what one of them had to say. Dear Ms. Deboza Kinagbe, the day I sat in this classroom, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't expect to have a teacher who actually knew how to teach. Last year, we had blank. She had like zero idea of how to teach us, but we all made it. From the experience, my expectations were pretty low. But now I find myself appreciating you greeting us at the door, actually teaching us, laughing with us, and not raising your voice to the point where you lose it. Even though you made us do a lot of work, I realize that the learning environment you created is the best one of all our classes. I think next year you should continue like this. Now I could share countless examples and anecdotes that show the poor quality of teachers my students are assigned to year after year. The one who told a student with special needs, and I quote, you expect me to bend over backwards for you. Simply because the student advocated for herself and asked for extended time and a separate location for her assessment as her IEP required. Or the first year teacher who departs two months into the school year for medical reasons, leaving students with a rotating door of substitutes and little instruction for the rest of the year. According to a 2017 report from the Learning Policy Institute, teacher, teacher turnover rates are 70% higher for teachers in schools serving the largest concentration of students of color and nearly 50% higher for teachers in Title I schools, which serve more low-income families. These schools are staffed by teachers with fewer years of experience and in many cases, significantly less training. As one of my colleagues put it, the worst part about it is that our students know when a teacher doesn't know material, is overwhelmed, doesn't have a relationship with kids, and simply doesn't care. So they let go of the learning process because they can't count on their teacher. So how do we change this? Well, for one, we start by ensuring the students who need the best teachers actually get them. It won't be easy, but it is possible. Let's start by identifying who these teachers could be. Almost 10 years ago, I became a national board certified teacher. The National Board Certification process was designed to develop, retain, and recognize accomplished teachers and to generate ongoing improvement in schools across the country. There's a decade of research that shows that students of board-certified teachers learn more than their peers without board-certified teachers. Studies have also found that the positive impact of having a national board-certified teacher is even greater for students of color and low-income students. Now, I'm not saying that if a teacher is not board certified, they can't have a positive impact on student learning. What I am saying is that if this process, which was created by and for teachers and has existed since 1987, is able to identify excellent teachers, why don't we encourage, support, and incentivize them to teach in our highest need schools? 
I've spent 15 years teaching incredibly talented, intellectual, and promising students in high-need areas. And with the exception of one of those 15 years, I was always the only national board certified teacher at my school. On the other hand, another board certified teacher I know who works in a more affluent area has 15 board certified teachers on her staff. I'm not saying that those more affluent students don't deserve incredible teachers. What I am saying is that my students need them. So how do we get highly accomplished, effective, and committed teachers to come to our highest need schools? Simply put, we give them leadership opportunities, we give them a reduced teaching schedule, and we pay them. Board certified teachers are recognized as experts and already serve in a number of leadership roles at their school sites. Administrators in our highest need schools are often overworked and overwhelmed. Why not leverage the expertise of board certified teachers to support their colleagues with instructional coaching, curriculum and lesson planning, and creating strong classroom communities where all students can thrive? Why not let board certified teachers lead in our high need schools? Now, national board certified teachers are phenomenal, but we're not superhuman. No one can sustain a full class load while at the same time supporting the professional growth of their colleagues. This is where a reduced teaching schedule comes in. Half board certified teachers spend 50 or 60% of their time with students and the rest with colleagues. Their classrooms could become labs where their colleagues could see strong instruction in action. The work of teaching is complicated and it's even more complex and exhausting in a high need school. A reduced teaching load would give board certified teachers the crucial time needed to support their colleagues. And we know that when teachers feel supported, they stick around. Lastly, if we want board certified teachers to teach and lead in high need schools, we have to pay them. I recently served as a peer collaborative teacher in my South Bronx 6 through 12 school. In that role, I was responsible for teaching seventh grade English half of the time and supporting the professional learning of my entire staff the other half. And I was paid an additional $12,500 for this work. The district and my principal recognized the positive impact I had on teacher improvement and retention and on school culture. And one way they showed that recognition was by paying me. We can no longer allow brilliant and promising students like the one whose letter I shared expect to have bad teachers. It's a disservice to our children and to our entire society. All students deserve excellent teachers, but my students need them. Let's show our black and brown and economically poor kids that we actually care about them by putting the best teachers in their classrooms and letting them lead. And that's my show and tell. Wow, Genevieve, thank you for that. That was, uh, you, you had a lot in there. You brought the heat to the studio. We, we appreciate that. Um, so as a 15-year classroom teacher, I guess I'd like to start with asking a little bit more about national board certification mm -hmm. because um, I'm not nationally board certified. I think maybe there's uh, some of our viewers or listeners um, have heard about it but don't quite know much about it. Mm -hmm. So could you, I guess, explain a little bit about what that entails and why? Um, you think that's a, a promising direction to go for 
making sure that there's quality teachers in front of the most at-need students. Yeah, so national board certification is a completely voluntary process, right? A teacher can opt into it, um, and it's a certification that was created by teachers for teachers, and something that I love about it is it's scored by teachers. Hmm. Um, and you basically, there's a set of standards that were written and created by teachers for each of our different content areas and um, grade or ages that you teach. And your job um, through certification is to demonstrate your mastery of those standards. And you do that in a number of ways. So there's there's four components to the certification. Um, the first is really around your content knowledge. Like, do you know the content that you're teaching? And that is actually assessed through a test. So you sit down and you take a test. Um, the second component is really around differentiation in instruction. And so when I did it, I had to track a group of students over the course of the year. Um, as they grew as writers and how did I differentiate my instruction and so I had to submit student work and do a lot of writing and reflection on that um, and the third component is really around like your teacher practice and so you're filming yourself uh, multiple times in your classroom and then doing a lot of writing and reflection to show how your how your actual classroom practice demonstrates those standards and the final component is really around like how are you an effective and reflective practitioner. So are you having an impact beyond your classroom? Are you communicating or working with the school, the community, other teachers? Um, and how do, you, how do you demonstrate that? So it's an intense process, um, but one that really forced me to look at myself and my own practice and make some shifts that have made me a better, a better mm -hmm. teacher. Yeah. So apart from the, the actual national board certification process mm -hmm. unto itself, um, I'm wondering if you can maybe uh, or, or you and, and we can kind of weigh <laughs> in on a on a discussion about what are the traits that actually yeah. uh, I think you in some cases name specifically, but also kind of alluded to um, that actually make for that that effective teaching in our, um, you know, in our highest need schools. Yeah. I mean, I think like what, what sticks to me throughout all my time is really like, as a teacher, you have to believe in all of your kids. And if you are someone that doesn't believe that all kids can learn, you should not be teaching, period. Yeah. But you should definitely not be teaching <laughs> in a high need school, right? And, and when ki kids can really read, does this teacher have my back? Do they, are they gonna push me because they know I can do it? So I feel like that's a quality that you really believe that all kids can learn and you're gonna do what you need to do to help get them to that place. Mm. I think that's one component. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the biggest components in my own experience and seeing whether or not that teacher actually believes in the students and actually wants to be part of that student and every student's educational growth. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing where I, as a veteran classroom teacher, you know, I still struggle with how do you even identify that or measure that? Because, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, no matter a person's experience or education or whatever, like they don't really believe in the kids, then it's, it's like a wrap. Like the kids, like you said, the kids could read that yeah. off the bat. And um, you mentioned one way to encourage um, having quality teachers at the highest need schools is to offer not offer, but to um, have more incentives in terms of more pay and more support and more time to focus on their work and mm -hmm. be leaders. As far as the pay part, you know, that comes up a lot. Um, the idea of working in the most challenging schools, really, really you deserve and, um, and should get more support salary-wise and pay-wise. Um, but I work at a school where it was being reconstituted, 
long time ago. And uh, the district offered a $5,000 a year stipend for three years, so $15,000 to any mm -hmm. teacher in the district that was willing to transfer over mm -hmm. as part of the reconstitution. And not one single teacher from any of the other schools in the district took them up on that. Yeah. So a bunch of new teachers, including myself, came into the school and you know we I definitely took the stipend, but I didn't <laughs> need the stipend. That's not right. why I came. Um, but not one other teacher came over. So uh, what do you think about sort of the, the stigma of these, the extra pay being sort of like a hazard pay or a combat pay and, and kind of drawing maybe negative attention to that? particular school site. Yeah, I mean, I have I had a similar, there was a similar program at my school in the South Bronx, which I also mm. didn't know about, but right. I was like, oh, I get this extra $7,500? Great, bad. yeah, I'll take it. But the, I think the key is that it, it's not just about pay, right? Like right. we know as teachers yeah. that pay matters, right? Teachers right. are grossly underpaid as professionals in our nation, but pay only is so much, right? Like right. the environment that you, that is created by the school leadership and the principals. Like, do I have colleagues that I can connect to and, and I feel challenged by and, and I feel supported by? That matters more. So I think, I do think that teachers who teach in high need schools should get paid more. But I also right. think it's not just pay, right? right? Like that's not going to bring people to our schools if it stands alone. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. and if somebody comes yeah. for that pay, maybe they aren't the right person to be right. there in the first place. Right, Yeah, Agreed. and I, I mean, I, I just want to call out the uh, combat pay phrase that you, right. uh, hey, you, you what, just dropped that's in, what I right? Like, like um, so I also, you know, came up as a teacher in New York City and um, New York State, I think the program was called Teachers of Tomorrow yeah. program, right? Mm -hmm. And it was great. It was very important for me in my early uh, years, you know, paying back student loans mm -hmm. and, you know, helping to make rent in New York and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. So I. I fully believe we should have that program and more. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this, this, this notion that, you know, even with a financial incentive, no one was willing to take combat pay to right. come across town and teach, uh, teach at your school, Manuel. Um, you know, the, the language we hear around hazard pay or combat pay, right. you know, these sort of military war zone phrases mm -hmm. um, are, are really being used to describe teaching our, our students, right? Yeah. right? And yeah. um, so I, I think there's, uh, I don't know exactly where, uh, you know, we need to go with that, but it raises some interesting questions for me about how we're thinking about the nature of the work. Um, and and so both that being problematic, but also like, what are we going to do to move the, the perception needle and the sort of mindset needle about doing this type of work, right? Mm -hmm. That it is perhaps less desirable than teaching at a more affluent or a more, you know, well-resourced um, school. And some of that does get to resources and, and equity for sure. But I think some of it also gets to like the, you know, the, the worth we're ascribing to our kids yeah. versus other kids, right? Yeah. Um, and we, we, have, we have some work to do there. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we do. So speaking of, of work to do, mm -hmm. um, you know, I part of what I loved about your piece was uh, it, to me, it felt a little bit like a, a call to arms uh, for our profession to say, like, hey, we can, you know, we can uh, do some things to bring our best and brightest to the places where the need is greatest. Yeah. And there are other professions that do this. Mm -hmm. There are other professions that don't right, right. like uh <laughs> you know there are engineering competitions where they're like we have this messy problem we got to get this we got to get this person to the moon and back alive <laughs> right. right and like the best minds come, come. together yeah. to do the hardest work yeah. right 
Um, we also have, uh, you know, situations where, you know, that that's not the case, right? Where, where people tend to kind of peel off and stay away from doing the most difficult challenges. And yeah. I think sadly teaching sometimes is one of those, those cases. And we have structural challenges, right? We mm -hmm. have lower pay, we have, um, you know, uh, contracts, which uh, when budgets get thin, um, result in the, the last in being the first to be laid mm -hmm. off, right? Mm -hmm. So this sort of repeated cycle of, um, of your young, new professionals being exited yeah. um, due to layoffs and that sort of thing. And so, um, I don't know, with those in mind, where do, how do we actually uh, respond to this call to action? <laughs> oh, the big question. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of possibility when people come together to actually put all of those amazing ideas and experience and expertise together. So if there's a way, right, when I think about like districts and this happening at a district uh, level, which is part of why I loved being in New York City, because they had like very clear teacher leadership roles. Um, how do we bring together, I guess it would be a call to districts to bring together teachers, principals, administrators, district staff to think about, and students and families to think about if we really know this is something that is impacting us as a district and as a city, how do we make sure that our kids who are of the most need get the best people? Mm. And I believe strongly that a lot of the solutions are there. I think in terms of money, there's always money. Like we just yeah. where do we prioritize our money yeah. right so Jeff, it's Jeff there. Bezos and Bill Gates <laughs> yeah. and uh, Warren Buffett apparently have <laughs> as much as the bottom half of the country right. combined so it exists maybe we should ask them yeah or take from them yeah <laughs> socialism Jeff I know I know <laughs> terrible yes uh, you want to be like Venezuela huh? I'm just huh? saying we could get some books in Genevieve's classroom uh, you this, know this is true Jeff and some is great not teachers miss that money. yes yes thank yes. you yeah. yes <laughs> Well, Genevieve, thank you for coming on to our show and sharing that. You're always yes. welcome to come back. Hopefully, we'll have you back again soon. Awesome. And uh, for all of you tuning in, head to our website, aotashow.com, for links to some of the um, studies and resources mentioned uh, during the show and tell and anywhere else in our episode. That about does it for today's episode. If you made it all the way to the end of this episode and you haven't hit that follow button or that like button or subscribe or whatever it is, depending on what app you're using, go ahead and do that because we don't want you to miss any of our upcoming episodes. But for Class Dismissed, we like to shout out uh, amazing people and amazing schools doing great work out there. And for today's Class Dismissed, a big shout out to my Milken educator brother, Eric Crouch who is a finalist for the Global Teacher Prize. He's headed to Dubai this month to represent the educators of the United States of America. He's going along with three other finalists from the US um, for this prize, which is a million dollar international um, prize highlighting great work across the whole world. And Eric Crouch has done awesome work, uh, not just within his classroom, but recently him, uh, he helped spearhead a, a move to raise funds for areas uh, that were ravaged by Hurricane Michael down in the Florida Panhandle. And uh, thanks in large part to his efforts, they raised over $700,000 for teaching materials for mm -hmm. those, uh, teaching resources for those areas. So Eric Crouch, good luck out there in Dubai. Yeah. Beautiful story. What what have I been doing with my career? Nothing, man. <laughs> Evidently. Uh, apparently nothing. Man. Wow. Impressive. Yeah. Um, 
So folks, uh, we are at the end of our episode. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, you can find all of our content on our website, which is aotashow.com. That's aotashow.com. I also want to tell you, you can find our content on YouTube. We have a custom YouTube link, which is youtube.com slash all of the above. YouTube.com slash all of the above. Come check us out, spread the word, share this with uh, your educator colleagues, friends and family, and join the conversation. We'd love to uh, debate with you. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.